morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, a number of years ago, I was speaking to another congregation, which at the time included a question and answer period with the speaker as a part of the Sunday morning service. And that morning, I had given a talk of mine called I Don't Have a Suit that had to do with our experience of feeling like an insider or an outsider. During the Q&A, one woman was sharing with the congregation the pain of having to recently admit her elderly father into an assisted living facility, where she explained there was a signed seating in the dining room. Unbeknownst to my dad, she said, he got seated at the cool table. Because soon enough, one of the other residents rolled up alongside him and commented sadly, that used to be my place until you got here. Bad news, folks. It seems like in some ways we never get out of junior high. <laughs> I attended Jefferson Junior High in Long Beach, as my father had some 30 years earlier. In fact, when he was 12 years old, he was on his bike across the street from the school, having wrapped up his paper route late one Friday afternoon in March 1933, when the earthquake hit. And he watched as his school collapsed into a heap of rubble. Far from rubble in my mind, Jefferson is a time and place that still lives so vividly in my consciousness. And like it or not, it was a shaping force in the person I would become and how I would come to see my place in the world. Yeah, middle school, junior high can be a potent time for many of us, a time of self-awakening and discovery of getting one's bearings. For many, a time of desperate yearning to belong and yet always being the outsider. For some, a time of enormous cruelty, either as the victim or the perpetrator, or both. And for some, a time of enormous vulnerability, terrifying vulnerability. I was a gay 11-year-old boy when I started at Jefferson. It was the first time I ever had to get naked in front of other little boys and stood up for PE and showered together. Gerald Colucci had chest hair in seventh grade, <laughs> while some of the other boys clearly hadn't begun puberty yet. My God, my memory of those times, the people, the places, they are fixed in a 13-year-old's perceptions. And it could take years to tease apart those perceptions and begin to see one another, including ourselves, in a truly multidimensional way. Perhaps some of you saw the recent film, Eighth Grade. It is a devastating, achingly poignant portrait of this rite of passage, shot through an utterly contemporary lens. And yet, in some ways, only going to prove the old adage that the more things change, the more they stay the same. In the film, Kayla is 13, and she's enduring the last week of classes after a disastrous eighth grade year. Kayla makes these little shoebox time capsules, including a video time capsule, as a sort of gift and touchstone to her future self. She had made one upon graduating elementary school to the future middle school graduate whom she had imagined would have it all figured out by now and that life would be sweet. Much in the same way many of us might have imagined once upon a time that life would be so much easier once we get to be an adult. This talk is kind of the opposite of such a time capsule in a way. Rather than reaching forward in time, I'm reaching backward in time to a few specific characters of Jefferson, teachers more precisely, who are fixed in my mind in little more than two dimensions. And if I dare to see them in a multidimensional way, what might I discover about myself? Did any of you ever find it nearly impossible to conceive of your teachers as human beings, <laughs> living a normal life outside the classroom? 
I mean, we might acknowledge they were married or had kids, but just couldn't quite wrap our heads around it. Perhaps it's a function for those in my generation for whom teachers showed up to school in dresses, suits, and ties. It was hard enough to imagine them in casual clothes, let alone living a normal life. I remember how shocking it was to see Mr. Keller getting an ice cream cone at Thrifty Drugstore. <laughs> or to see a teacher cry. Mrs. McCants was the first African-American teacher I ever had, eighth grade English. I just adored her. I can still sense how disarming it was to see her openly weep in front of the class on Friday, April 5th, 1968, the day after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. It was impossible to grasp the depth, the magnitude of such an event for her, for any of us, really. I was coming of age in this narrow window of time in which assassinations had become the norm. Well, a few years ago, Ted Offier, an old friend from the neighborhood, and a fellow altar boy at Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church, <coughs> sent me an email, including a link to a then 12-year-old obituary for Claude Evans. Mr. Evans had been our ninth grade geometry teacher at Jefferson. Now, Teddy, who sadly passed away himself quite recently, knew everything about everybody and every place that had been our world in Signal Hill and Long Beach during those years. Everybody should have a Teddy. I remember Mr. Evans mostly as a big, bald, humorless, seemingly ancient man in his mid-50s <laughs> with a deep voice and bad breath and chalk dust always flocking the dark suits he wore. The residue of so many triangles and parallelograms drawn on the chalkboard. Mr. Evans also led the after-school slide rule club, if you can imagine. <laughs> Dorcas Horace that I was. <laughs> I showed up for the first few meetings in my little slide rule from Savon Drugstore. Though I lost interest pretty quickly. But don't you know when it came time to take yearbook photos for campus clubs? I and some of my friends showed up for that slide rule club <laughs> Hey, it was a chance to get out of class. We were thought we thought we were so clever. Mr. Evans was etched in my mind as little more than a cartoon. And yet when I read his obituary, I was filled with such tenderness. For this man I never got to know, though I had spent an hour with him every day for a year. I didn't know he served in the Army Air Corps as my dad had during World War II. I didn't know he'd been co-captain of a Rose Bowl winning football team for Berkeley. I couldn't have known that he lost an adult son in 1984. But the line that pierced the deepest revealed what I really didn't know. Anyone who knew Claude knew most importantly that he was one who would help anyone in need. And he would do so with kindness and warmth and a smile and no expectation of anything in return. The 13-year-old within me did not recognize this portrait at all and felt ashamed. The 60-something-year-old man only felt sorrow for this missed opportunity to connect with an extra layer of sadness because the obituary was already 12 years old. As if that somehow solidified that this was an opportunity gone forever. Much in the same way many of us might experience a different layer of sadness when we hear many years after the fact that someone we had known or cared about once had died. These are wondering how little we ever really know of each other. Well, 20-some years ago, late in August, on a Friday afternoon after work, 
I drove down to Long Beach to meet an old college friend, Carrie, to go kayaking on the Alameda's bench. Carrie and I had both grown up in Long Beach, and we even went to the same high school, but we didn't know each other there. We met a few years later in an engineering class at UCLA. But the bank was a place that for each of us held indelible, joyful memories of times growing up in Long Beach. So as we paddled around, we did a lot of, oh, I remember one time, and oh, did you ever go over there? And you remember the popsicles they sold at Woody's Goodies? It was truly an enchanted afternoon. As the sun began to set, we turned in our kayaks, and nobody were soggy and a little sandy. We walked down Second Street through Belmont Shore to go grab some dinner at a now long-gone Long Beach institution, Hawks Hut. Even then, though, it had lost all the tacky familial charm we had remembered. It had become sort of corporatized and slick and hip. But as we were making our way down Second Street toward the restaurant, I commented to Carrie. I have the strangest sensation that I'm going to run into somebody from my distant past. Isn't that weird? We go into the restaurant, give the hostess our name, I turn around and cannot believe my eyes. There is sitting my eighth grade gym teacher, Mr. Weinberger, the devil incarnate. <laughs> <laughs> Never quite liking the boys in class, he'd only designed to drive that point home. As if the other boys in class couldn't be counted on to underscore that difference every single day, Mr. Leinberger could be counted on to bring up the rear. That's what you mean to tell me you can't jump over that? You couldn't throw that ball? You couldn't make that basket? Go get me two laps. There he sat. Still a large man. Still with close cropped hair. Still with no neck. <laughs> but now with a cane and a face slightly askew that led me to think he'd like to have a stroke. I pointed out the materialization of my premonition to Carrie. She whipped the camera out of her purse right away and said, you've got to go say hi, quick, I'll take your picture. I knew she was right, of course, but not for the reason she would have assumed. I knew this was a threshold for me to cross because I knew if I say hello to him, I will also have to come out to him. Because sooner than later, a question will be asked about life for kids. Excuse me, are you Mr. Weinberger? Well, yeah, who are you? I offered my hand to shake and reintroduced myself. He took my hand and did not let go. He pulled me down to sit next to him, not letting go of my hand. And for the next few moments, I was his captive audience. And I got an entire encapsulated version of the previous 40-some years. I heard all about the wife. The kids, the grandkids, the retirement, the stroke. And then he finally says, so what about you, Mike? How many kids you got? None, I answered. Well, why not? What's your wife do? Here we go. <laughs> I'm not married. I'm gay. I live with a man. And I've shared my life with him for 19 years now. The silence hung there in the air in a moment as awkward as junior high itself. <laughs> While he looked around as if hoping someone would offer a Q-tip to clean out his ears. Finally <laughs> said, are you shitting me? <laughs> no. No, I'm not. Again, the silence hung there. I realized this, too, is a threshold. That I had spent my entire life, really, 
carrying a sense of apology for being gay, for being different, making adjustments and accommodations to everyone else's discomfort with this reality. And for once, I was giving it back. Here, you deal with it. <laughs> he fussed and fidgeted for a bit, and he finally stood out, well, that's okay with me, I guess. Gee, thanks. <laughs> More to comfort himself than me, really, but just then the hostess called our name, and we were seated for dinner, and that was that. But I have to say, during the entire meal, my heart did not stop pounding in my chest. I thought my chest was going to explode. For in that moment, he was not a feeble old man. And I was not an out, proud, 40-something, self-actualized gay man. I was 13 years old, and I had just come out to my gym teacher. Sam Sanders, the host of the NPR podcast, It's Been a Minute, recently observed that coming out is not just declaring yourself to the world. It's declaring yourself to each earlier version of yourself. And letting that person know that they're cool, too. Yeah, PE class was by far the most torturous aspect of junior high for me. It all started day one, seventh grade. My teacher that year was Mr. Dennis. He was a short, affable enough man with a Detroit haircut. Short flat top on top, held up with butch wax, long on the sides, long behind the ears. Even in 1966, that haircut was a few years out of date. <laughs> Mr. Dennis showed an obvious preference for the more athletic boys in class, and they returned the favor by affectionately calling him coach. Well, day one, seventh grade, after the trauma of suiting up for PE, Mr. Dennis tested us on how far we could throw a football, how many times we could hike it between our legs, and hit the center of a bicycle inner tube, hanging on a chain link fence behind us, within some specified period of time. I was a big sissy boy, who'd rather practice walk steps out in right field than concentrate on any baseball game. I had never touched a football, let alone thrown one. I got an F, the first in my life. Mortified, humiliated, I can still feel the shame of being summoned into Mr. Meyer's office, a seventh grade counselor, and told I was to be placed in special PE. That was PE designed for boys with special needs, disabilities, handicaps, more commonly and disparagingly referred to as ortho-PE. And the culture was such at the time that if you appeared to be able-bodied and were put in special PE, you might as well just change schools. You're not going to survive. I confronted Mr. Dennis the next day. Did you recommend I be put in special PE? Kind of ballsy when I think about it. He sheepishly answered yes. I think also kind of knowing he was condemning me to a sort of social death sentence. My only saving grace in the end was that the gifted math class met in the same period as special PE. And so math jumped out over football, and I was relegated to regular PE, where I spent a lot of time on benches, surreptitiously mapping out cha-cha steps with my feet tucked on the bench. <laughs> the crazy irony is that very few years later, I began a career as a professional dancer. Physical ability, coordination, agility were not my issue. But because I didn't fit the cultural norms of what a boy was expected to like, didn't excel at the things in which a boy was expected to excel, I was somehow seen as an affront to that culture. And I was labeled handicapped because of it. But you know what? I'm almost over it. <laughs> <laughs> 
In that same email, the text said, with the obituary for Mr. Evans, there was also a link to an article about Mr. Dennis. This one from the Salt Lake City Daily Herald. James Dennis, 73, retired middle school teacher, former bishop in the Mormon church, convicted and sentenced to 20 years to life for the sexual assault and molestation of 17 girls, four of whom were his granddaughters. His son quoted in the article that it is believed his father assaulted his first victim some 50 years earlier. That would have been Mr. Dennis's little enterprise had been well underway when he had met my teacher. Another close friend of family is quoted as saying, we were all so shocked. If only we'd seen something. Maybe we could have done something to stop it. Yeah, the things we don't see. Almost more chilling than the headline was the mugshot included in the article. Of course, the Detroit haircut was long gone. Yet despite the now sagging jowls and the orange jumpsuit, it was most definitely my tormentor. Same cold blue eyes, staring blankly at the camera. With this expression, it was not so much a grimace or a scowl, so much as it was one of surrender. The jig is up. It's all over. Complete and total disgrace. Now, if this article had been about any other perpetrator, any stranger, I'm certain that my response would be moral outrage and disgust. Lock the bastard up, throw away the key. And given whom he represents in my own biography, I might have thought there'd be another layer, a flare of schadenfreude, if you would, delight in his demise. But neither was the case. I only felt deep, profound sadness. And I must admit, my sadness was not for his victims at that moment, but for him. Not only sadness, even a kind of softness. And I'm left wondering about that sadness and about the softness. Here, this article of the Daily Herald confronts my 13-year-old perceptions of who Mr. Dennis was. Perceptions that have remained safely unchanged for those same 50 years. And with each of these stories, I watched as those perceptions crumbled right before my eyes. Just like Jefferson itself crumbled right before my father's eyes in 1933. Leaves me to wonder if such earthquakes aren't such a bad thing, metaphorically speaking. Giving us an opportunity to reinterpret that which we thought was so solid and fixed and unchanging. Giving us a chance to see through walls that hid things that should have been seen. It took 50 years to bring him to justice, after all. But I come back to why sadness? Why softness? Is it because, like it or not, Mr. Dennis and I did share a metaphorical minute waltz in the cosmic dance of our lives, and so somehow he puts a human face on an inhuman deed? Is that it? Is it because of some deep sense of inherent worth and dignity, no matter what? Perhaps, but I don't think so. Or could it be something approaching true compassion? If only for the complete degradation, humiliation, and disgrace of another human being. I don't know. I only know I felt and I feel 
sadness. In the film, Eighth Grade, Kayla opens the shoebox time capsule she had made for herself upon graduating elementary school. And when she's confronted with the unmet dreams and expectations and aspirations, she finds it too painful, overwhelming in fact. She asks her father to be a witness to a ritual burning of the time capsule, not wanting to leave any trace of evidence of such unmet dreams. Even while he plaintively asks her, are you sure, honey? I know I didn't want her to burn it either. <coughs> now, if Mr. Dennis had made a time capsule for himself at 13, for himself at 73, it most definitely would not have included that bump shot and that orange juice. But then again, had I made one for myself at 13, for myself at 64, there is very little in my life that could have been imagined. The joy or the pain of it. I certainly could never have imagined being an oncology chaplain. Possibly most inconceivable in 1966 would be that I would be sharing my life with Scott for 41 years as an out proud, legally married gay man who still can't throw a football. <laughs> so what about you? What might your 13-year-old self have imagined about you today? What, if anything, would you have to say to him or her? Mark those earlier versions of ourselves know deep in their hearts that they're cruel too. May there be love. May there be compassion. May there be room for all of us at the cruelty. Mm -hmm. So be it.